Thanks, Matt and Imogen. Uh, good morning, everyone. My name's Andy. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here at church. Why don't I pray for us before we get stuck into 1 Corinthians 8. Our Heavenly Father, we do praise you for your word. We praise you for the life that it brings us. And we pray this morning that you would help us not to be puffed up. Help us not to seek to master, you, to master your word, but be mastered of it and to know the life that comes in Jesus Christ. Amen. We all look a bit tired this morning, so I want to play a game as we begin. Uh, what I want you to do is uh, stand up. Everyone stand up. And uh, it's, it's a game called I Have Never. And what you have to do is I'm going to say a number of statements. And if you have never done that thing, I want you to sit down. So, um, I have never given a birthday gift to someone else. Oh, there's always a couple of tight ones, isn't there? <laughs> I have never cooked a meal for someone else. Oh, I'm impressed. I'm impressed. I have never lent anyone else my car. <laughs> How about this one? I have never turned vegetarian for anyone else for life. Oh, there's always, there's always someone. There's always someone who married vegan, isn't there? There's always someone. <laughs> Who turned vegetarian? I was banking on someone doing that. It's very un-Australian, isn't it? To give up meat. To give up meat for life. To give up your 300 gram Kirribilli Club steak, medium rare with peppercorn sauce on the side and the little flag on top. Very un-Australian. Who on earth would do that? Heidi Norton. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Love it. Um, but that's what verse 13 says, isn't it? Did you notice that as, uh, as it was read out? Let me read verse 13. If food causes my brother to fall, it will never again, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother to fall. Repeat it again. The Apostle Paul says that he will go vego for life to stop his brother or sister in Christ from falling from Christ. See, verse 11, did you see verse 11? That's a a scary verse. Verse 11 says that every Christian in this room holds the potential to destroy another Christian just by going about our everyday lives. Verse 11, then the weak person, the brother for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. The question this morning uh, that this passage gives us is how far would we go for another Christian to keep them Christian? Would we give up meat? Would we give up alcohol? Would we give up clubbing? Would we give up yoga? Would we give up our work ethic? Would we give up even our favorite shirt so that our brother or sister in Christ would stay Christian? You see, how far we go for someone else to keep them Christian reveals just how other person-centered our Christianity is. Or negatively, how far me-centered my Christianity is. You ever heard that parody of the song, it's all about me? How far is our Christianity all about me? That's a question that governs this this, uh, new section from 
<coughs> chapters, uh, from chapter 8 through to chapter 11, verse 1. This week, our, uh, Paul asks us, how far will we go to keep someone Christian? Chapter 9 asks us, how far will we go for someone to become Christian? I've been pretty encouraged by this church. It's a good church. Uh, We do a lot for each other, I think. Uh, We cook meals for each other. I see people loan each other money. I see people loan each other cars. I see people go babysitting at each other's houses. We do a lot for each other. And that is a sign of a gospel-shaped community, isn't it? A sign of a community of people who are shaped by what God has done for us in Christ. And it is... Uh, good that we do those things. But there's got to be limits, hasn't there? There's got to be limits. It's costly to do things for other people. It's inconvenient to do things for other people. And like the Christians in Corinth, uh, we breathe the air of a city that says this life is all about me, all about my rights and my needs. The Apostle Paul this morning pushes the limits on how far we'll go. And he gets us to breathe this gospel air, if you like. And and he says, um, how far will you go to keep your brother or sister Christian? Uh, I wonder whether you notice that the word knowledge is repeated ten times. No, and knowledge is repeated ten times. And Paul says that to the Christian... That the key to keeping our brother and sister Christian is how we use our knowledge. That's what he says to you if you're a Christian here today. If you're not a Christian here today, you will think that I'm bonkers. Uh, You will think that I'm that preacher out of Footloose saying there will be no dancing in this town. Uh, No clubbing, no meat, that kind of thing. You will think I am bonkers. You will think Christianity is bonkers. But what I hope you... Uh, we'll see, is just how beautifully other person-centered the Christian faith is. Just how free uh, people are in Christ to follow Jesus. Well, I've got two principles to help us this morning. Two principles to help keep each other Christian, stop each other from destroying each other. Two principles. First principle, that knowledge without love is a dangerous thing. We had it in the kids' talk, didn't we? The head puffing up. Knowledge without love is a dangerous thing. And Paul really sets this principle up that governs the next three chapters in verses 1 to 3 of our chapter. So he says, we know that we all have knowledge. He's quoting the Corinthian Christians. Uh, Knowledge inflates with pride, but love builds up. Now he builds this He he builds this um, principle, and we've seen in 1 Corinthians that being puffed up with pride has caused a lot of problems for this Corinthian church. Uh, They were in this amazing church in this amazing city, but they were all a bunch of show-offs, bragging about who they followed, uh, what they could and what they couldn't do, and now they're bragging about uh, eating meat offered to idols. Now, I know this issue has been keeping you up all night, hasn't it? Can I, can't I eat meat offered to idols? Obviously, Paul is speaking into a specific situation in first century Corinth. Uh, A temple, uh, life in Corinth revolved around the temple. So in the temple, you worshipped at the temple. 
uh, you ate at the temple. Apparently, there was an abattoir and a restaurant in the temple. And you did business in the temple. That's kind of the, the hub of these cities that you did business in these temples. It was the heart of life. So when people in Corinth became Christian, uh, they knew that it was sinful for them to go to the temple. They knew that they didn't want to have anything to do with these pagan gods and this meat offered to idols. So they pulled back from eating. They pulled back from uh, going to the temple, from doing their business. And there would have been great cost and persecution to do that, to say, my life is for Christ now. So I'm going to have nothing to do with that old way of life. Well, there are other Christians in Corinth, and they knew their Bibles, and they were saying, we're free, we're free in Christ. We can eat what we like, Jesus says. Now, Paul doesn't, Paul, in in his addressing of that problem, he doesn't lay down a law. He could have easily done that, couldn't he? He doesn't lay down a law. In fact, he doesn't even say they're wrong. Did you notice that as we read it out? So, verse 4, he says, idols are nothing. He says there's only one God. And he created the world, he created idols, and he created the temple, and he created all of you. Verse 6, he created all things. And verse 8, he says, what you eat, and uh, what you eat and what you don't eat has no relation, uh, no relationship or bearing on your relationship to God. See, he says they're right. He could have said, no, you're wrong, you're, you're doing it all wrong. He doesn't say you're. Uh, 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 so he says that he doesn't say they're wrong. And what he says to us is that our knowledge, what we learn in the Bibles, in our Bible, is not wrong. Uh, he says uh, to them, your theology is correct. He says you have the right to eat everything, anything you like. Jesus is correct. Uh, he uh, has said you can eat anything you like. The issue for them was how they used their knowledge. Uh, did they use their knowledge, he says, to make themselves look good, to puff themselves up like Mr. Pufferhead? Uh, or did they, or, or, or he says to them, do you exercise your right to eat for self-satisfaction? Do you exercise your right uh, to pride, to puff yourself up? And the question he uh, puts before them is, uh, with your knowledge, are you going to puff up or are you going to build up? Did you see that? Verse 3, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge inflates with pride, but love builds up. You see, there are two things we can do with our knowledge of the Bible, uh, with our theology, and with our knowledge of God. We can either puff ourselves up, or we can build each other up. Now, we'll see the first thing come to, to light, I think, when we first come to church in the first conversation that we have, or when we're feeling intimidated uh, by some theological bigwig. Uh, you kind of puff yourself up. You use your knowledge to make yourself look big, to uh, allow yourself uh, to hold your head up in the conversation. Paul says, like a, a chef's knife can be used to create beautiful pieces of art in the wrong hands, with the wrong motivation, it is a dangerous weapon. So to knowledge used with the wrong motive and in the wrong hands can be a dangerous weapon. It can be very dangerous. Your 
Bible knowledge, your church attendance, your ability to explain complex theological uh, issues can be a dangerous weapon. Now, I know there's not many people texting into our one question for God saying, uh, can I eat food offered to idols? Uh, so let me offer an example of how this can work out in uh, everyday life. It's an example from my own life. When I was a 20-year-old Christian, I'd been a Christian for 18 months. I was converted out of a life of playing rugby and doing all the stereotypical things that rugby players did uh, at the pub following, uh, the, uh, chasing the opposite sex. And so when I came to become a Christian, those things had to go. I gave myself a two-pint limit. That was one of the things I did to make sure that I, I didn't drink too much. I gave myself a two-pint limit. And, uh, and that worked well for me until I went to a party with a Christian friend. And so we bought each other drinks. And I bought him a drink. He bought me a drink. And we got to, I got to my two-pint limit. And I said, sorry, I won't have any more than that. I've got this two-pint limit. And he said to me, Andy, you need to learn that you're free in Christ. And you're saved by grace. So we had a third drink, and we may have had a fourth. I can't remember. We didn't go too far. We, but uh, and I, don't think we, I don't think we went too far that night. But what it led to was a complete regression in my Christian life. So for six months, for the second year of my university, I returned to those, uh, those pre-Christian rugby days of debauchery and clubbing and doing the things I used to do before as a Christian. God was very kind. He uh, pulled me back and uh, got me back on the horse and reminded me that I was eating with the pigs. But I came to pretty close to being destroyed as a Christian for that uh, six-month period of my life. Uh, Peter, um, Paul says we shouldn't use our, our knowledge to cause people to stumble. We need to be aware of our weaker brothers. Neither, I think, should we use our knowledge as a weapon. This passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, has been uh, used as a weapon many a times. I heard, of, uh, I heard of a missionary overseas who sent out their prayer letter, and in one of the photos in their letter, they were eating ice cream. And one of their supporters wrote to them and said, how dare you eat ice cream being frivolous with your money like that? I'm going to withdraw my support of you. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Uh, we can use our, our knowledge uh, to build laws around ourselves and say, uh, Christians who have more than two pints, well, they're not proper Christians. Or Christians who watch certain rated movies, uh, they're not proper Christians. Or we can say that Christians who shop in certain kinds of shops, they're not proper Christians. Friends, let's not use our knowledge as a weapon either. And let's not use it as a means of leading people into sin. See, knowledge shouldn't be a weapon. Our, our passage isn't for us as the weak people. Paul's writing to the people causing other people to go astray. Do you see that? So he's not writing to, to the people who are in uh, danger of eating idle meat. He's writing to the people who are comfortable with eating idle meat. 
And we need to know that. We need to be aware of that, that we use our knowledge. We know that to know that our knowledge in the wrong hands with the wrong motivation can be a weapon. I inadvertently just went along with my friend. Oh, he knows uh, better than I do. He's been a Christian longer than I have. And it nearly destroyed me. Well, we need to follow our second principle this morning, that uh, knowledge empowered by God's love is a beautiful thing. Knowledge empowered by God's love is a beautiful thing. The Apostle Paul uh, writes, and he says that it is possible to know about God without actually knowing God. That's what he said in uh, in his first principle. I don't think, though, it's possible to know God without loving God. You see, as you uh, read these verses, as you uh, know God, as you read your Bible, and as you turn your theology into doxology, as you turn your knowledge into worship and praise of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, you come to know just what God has done for you. You come to know the God who's rescued you, the God who's rescued you at the expense of his son, Jesus. You come to know the God who lives in you by his spirit and gives you his presence. Uh, You come to know the God whose voice you hear every time you open the Bible. You come to know the God you serve in amongst his people, the God who serves you by his people. You come to know the God who keeps you and holds you through tough times until this world will be restored and our bodies will be resurrected for eternity. You see, you can't know God without loving him. So if you know God, you must love him. Uh, Verse 3 turns that on his head, though, doesn't it? It takes it one step further. Uh, Paul says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Verse 6, yet for us there is one God, the Father, all things are from him, and yet we exist for him. He goes further, all things, uh, and there is one Lord Jesus, all things are through him, and we exist through him. Paul takes all that majestic creation uh, descriptive language and puts it onto Jesus and says, if you know God, if you love him, then you have a personal relationship with the creator of the universe. All things are through him and we exist through him. Let's just soak that verse up. I think it's amazing. All things are through him, and we exist through him. Everything that we chase after, day in, day out, everything that we see around us, our very beings, our very selves, all created by the Lord Jesus that we know and worship and who lives inside us by his spirit. That is an amazing privilege, isn't it? An amazing privilege. And it changes the way we see everything. In the context of this chapter, it changes the way uh, we see each other. The way we behave in front of each other. For the Corinthians, Paul is saying to them, it should change the way uh, you eat in the temple's 
the way you eat in these idol temples and the effect that has on the salvation of other, other Christians. Have a look at me at verse 10 and 11. This is how he says it should change uh, their behavior, knowing this Jesus. He says, for if someone sees you, the one who has the knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? Then the weak person, the brother for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. If someone sees you, he's not making the assumption that somebody uh, will see them. That's how far knowing Jesus changes our life. If someone sees us, uh, we should be shaped so much by God's love for us in Christ and so concerned for each other's salvation that it will change uh, the micro and the macro. We will have such concern for each other going back to our pre-Christian life that we'll be wary of pushing them back there. We don't want to do uh, verse 12, do we? Read verse 12. Now when you sin like this, he's talking to the person who's eating the temple. Now when you sin like this against the brothers and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. I'm sure no one here who loves Jesus, who knows God, wants to do uh, verse 12. So the question uh, remains is, who is the person with the weak conscience? There's, uh, there might be uh, people amongst us who have had issues with eating food offered to idols, but I suspect uh, the majority won't. Who is uh, the person with the weak conscience? Now, I just want to cover off a knot. It's not saying to us, if we're shaped by the gospel, it's not saying we need to pander to every Christian's sensitivities. Uh, There will always be a Christian in your church who will look down on you for shopping in Thomas Duck's rather than Aldi's. There will always be someone who thinks that if you watch a PG movie, uh, then you are not as good a Christian as them. We shouldn't pander to other people's sensitivities. And if uh, you're feeling that pressure, flick with them to uh, Colossians 2 verse 18 uh, and tell them, uh, tell them about Colossians 2 verse 18. But it does mean that we should have a deep concern for the salvation of every Christian here. And that's going to mean knowing the Christians who are in our lives. That's going to mean knowing the Christians who are in our congregation, uh, the Christians who are in our hive groups, the Christians who are in our networks, our social networks on uh, Facebook and the people whose Christians whose paths we cross uh, around the office and that kind of thing. I wonder, do you know, uh, out of the people in your hive group, how those people became Christian? What kind of background They lived before they came to Christ. I wonder whether you know uh, where their weak conscience might be pricks. I think that's the first hurdle to get over. We need to uh, know each other and know each other's uh, weak consciences. We need to be sensitive to what's going to pull them away from Jesus. Now, I'm just uh, uh, picking off the top of my head, going through my 
Facebook and uh, Facebook friends list. Um, Facebook is the big um, temple window, isn't it? If anyone sees you in the temple, there is more chance for us because we have Facebook, because of the lives we live, because of social media, that people will see us and that we will prick the weak conscience. I was going through my Facebook friends list and there is uh, one guy, a Christian guy, who was converted out of a background of street fighting and violence. Now it would not be right for me to talk about the ultimate fighting scores on Facebook in case that pushes him back into that old way of life. There's another girl I know who wrote to me and she said, um, she, she, she describes this, she describes her conversion uh, as being out of a demonic experience that she experienced through yoga. Check that out. A demo- uh, that is her experience. That is her background. So it would not be right for me to check into yoga class. If you're into yoga here, that's one thing to consider. Um, uh, it would not be right for me to do that. Uh, let's, uh, we, we have a, a dry site here at church. That means we uh, never serve alcohol here at church. But how many, of our, uh, how many of us serve alcohol to other Christians without asking each other uh, whether this will be a problem? I know every time we go around uh, Paul's house, he always says, is, is everyone happy for us to serve wine? That would be a good thing to do in, in this uh, Following this principle of considering each other's weaknesses and each other's weak consciences. Let's not undo the good work of Christ by doing something as silly as offering a bottle of wine or taking a bottle of wine to an alcoholic's house or an ex-alcoholic's house. Uh, Facebook makes our lives all the more visible than ever before. Uh, And we need to consider Uh, what people we will be converted from in Kirribilli. So just think, if someone becomes a Christian tomorrow living in Kirribilli, what is the the life that they will become converted out of? What will be their idols? Well, it might well be uh, uh, alcohol and uh, chasing the opposite sex. It will certainly be uh, a a career-driven idol, won't it? Uh, It may be materialism. It may be worship of the body. If someone is converted out of that uh, life and they say no to those idols, how, uh, how are we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, going to care for their conscience? And uh, care for their conscience and watch that we watch that we don't um, destroy. Their weakened confidence. Think about that. There's a, there's a bunch of stuff that we can go. We've all been converted uh, from different idols. But I'd love us, perhaps in our hive groups, to think about if someone becomes Christian tomorrow from someone you work with, uh, what are going to be their idols? What are going to be the things that may cause them to be destroyed, which may cause them to go backwards in their faith? If someone is converted out of a life of working uh, 80 hours a week, and they know that that is wrong, and that is their idol, and they, um, and they decide they're not going to do that. Uh, what are we who are free to work as many hours as we like, especially us who are capable of working that and doing all of our other things that we're obligated to do? What is uh, working a long week going to say to that brother or sister 
in Christ. Now, I'm not laying the law down. I know we get our inner lawyer out, but what if, what if, what if? I'm just putting it out there. I'm just saying, think about these things. Uh, what are the areas uh, going to be where people are converted? Now, I know you're, uh, you're thinking, what if, what if, what does that mean? But surely there's got to be some limits. Surely that's going to be inconvenient. Surely that's going to have a cost. And it will. It will have a cost for the Corinthians uh, not to go and do business in these temples, which they were free to do, would have had a huge cost. It will be costly. It will be inconvenient to prioritize the salvation of our brothers and sisters in Christ. But as we breathe the air of the gospel... And stop breathing the air of our city. As we breathe the air of the gospel, uh, we will see the joy of seeing our brothers and sisters in Christ. Keep going with Christ. There will be nothing better than when we see each other on the last day in the new creation and say, we did it. We made it. And there is no more better motivation than the Jesus who never said never to anything for us, who gave us his life, who gave us our lives, who, get, who paid the price for our sin, who didn't give us what our sins deserve, and opens the keys for eternity and says, come and spend it with me. Let's pray. Our Father, we are sorry when we have inadvertently led our brothers and sisters astray. Father, we pray that uh, we would not be puffed up with our knowledge, that we would not be show-offs with all the Bible that we have in our heads. But would we be loving servants who are shaped by the gospel, who love each other and prioritize each other's salvation. Help us to be a community of extremes, of selfless, sacrificial service of each other, as we walk towards glory with each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, when you're ready, I invite you to stand as we respond together.